0: Hello incarnation, my name is Dave Petty and my wife Allison who is here, our kids and grandkids, the people from our Anglican Mission Fellowship known as Crossroads Church, our friends from Redeemer Church who are seriously considering becoming Anglican and whose leadership attended here two weeks ago when I was co-celebrant with Aubrey we all send you our love from Charlottesville. It's good to be here. When C.S. Lewis wrote his book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the entering into Narnia, the first experience that Lucy really has as she gets through the forest, past the lamppost, is hospitality with a a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. The first encounter in Narnia is hospitality. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I pray that by your grace you would speak to us and that we would hear from you. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The title of this message is God Shows No Favoritism. Everyone is welcome. I'll say it again, God shows no favoritism, everyone is welcome. God's worldwide hospitality comes through the gospel. In the upper room, a communion meal was set and shared in secret with a handful of disciples. And then on Pentecost, the world was around the disciples and many came to Christ, but from Pentecost on, the disciples were to go around the world. Throughout, Jesus' prophecy was being fulfilled in the book of Acts, and we have been reading it. It really is less a mandate and more a prophecy. If you look at the text itself in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it isn't an imperative verb, it is a future verb. It is saying that you shall be my witnesses. This will come about when the Spirit comes upon you. From Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the outermost parts of the world. And um, now the communion table in this passage was set for whoever will to come. We will see that. We hear in Revelation the words, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the hospitality begin. But there's a missing piece. And the the missing piece here is that, um, let me put it this way. Jesus crosses the tracks to the unclean. He does that again and again. But Peter and and the apostles knew this for they had seen it and that they had heard that the gospel was for everyone. They even knew that. But what they couldn't get over was the idea of living and hanging out with the Gentiles. To the Jew and the Levitical law, uh, the Levitical law was clear about this. Keep your distance. Uh, I remember growing up in middle school in... uh, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and then when I was in ninth grade, I had some friends, I was hanging out with some friends away from where I lived, and they asked me one day, why do you hang out with us? We're from the other side of the tracks. You're the privileged people, we aren't. And my completely naive response was, I didn't know there were tracks. Well, the Orthodox Jew knew, and the Gentile knew. There were definitely tracks. And to the Jew, they could not be, must not be, ever be crossed. The Levitical law was clear. You shall be holy, for I am holy, set apart. You are not like other nations. You are to be holy. Don't eat what they eat. Don't touch what they touch. Don't live where they live. Don't think like them. Don't live like them. And certainly don't marry them. It's weird. That Jesus seemed to cross those tracks all the time. The woman caught in adultery, the tax collector in the tree, the Samaritan woman at the well, the blind man, the leper, the demon-possessed. even in his death, Jesus talked with a criminal and even said, "Truly this day you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise." Hmm. Yet. Though Jesus crossed the tracks again and again, and though he listened to and he talked to and he touched the unclean, the Gentile, that was then, that's what the walk he walked. But now we are with Peter in Acts, the chief of the apostles in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And in effect, what we will read as we read through this passage is to Peter and beyond, now it's the church's turn. To live that cruciform life is to be like Jesus. To go to uncomfortable places with your arms open. So we see Peter moving out, and and that's a good thing. We begin to see Peter moving out. He goes out from Jerusalem. He he goes out from Jerusalem. Great. He he finds himself on a trip reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha. What happens is he goes to the house of Aeneas, and there in Lydda, about 25 miles uh, toward the Mediterranean from Jerusalem, about 25 miles. He goes there, and Aeneas has been paralyzed for eight years, laying down, bedridden, and God uses him to, among the Greek-speaking Jews of Lydda, he, God uses Peter to bring the miraculous work of Christ. And word goes all around. The residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned back to the Lord. Then he goes to Joppa. That's about twelve miles further. It gets us to the coast of the Mediterranean, right on the coast. And there is Tabitha. Tabitha is a sweet name. Her name means gazelle or deer, and in, in and it's sweet. And the people and in that's in Aramaic and in as well in greek it means it is dorca and it's still dorcas and it still means the same and when he arrives it's a sad scene people are showing him look what she made in this life look at these garments look what she's done they loved her she was devout she was respected she was valued and now she was dead jesus is we, we, we see Jesus work through Peter in where Peter says asks everybody to leave the room, quietly si- quietly with just her, He kneels and prays. No one else is watching, but he's dependent on God. And he pours himself out to God and she, he calls her to get up, and she gets up. She is risen from the dead, and he takes her hand, and he, then he takes her out of the privacy of that miraculous moment to be shown to the world, to be shown to the neighborhood, to be shown to the friends. She's alive. Jesus is alive. God is at work. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed. We read that in verse 42. What happens here is important, because Peter is now validated as an authentic representative of the line of prophets who work signs and wonders. So there, in the midst of these other people outside of Jerusalem, they are now seeing a demonstration that Jesus, who rose again, is alive and at work through this man, and therefore through the church. Make no mistake about it. Now, did you notice that that Peter is is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner? What do tanners do? You know, in uh, Sixth Sense, the kid says, I see dead people. Uh, In this, this Jew, Peter, is living with someone who works with dead animals. And to the Jew, especially to the Orthodox Jew, this would be a stretch in terms of the unclean. So he's made some great strides. He's moved away from Jerusalem, Peter has. He's moved on from Lydda to Joppa. He's surrounded by Gentiles in this case. But not in that house. Thank you very much. So he'll work with Simon the Tanner. He'll live there. But something more is radical is coming, Peter. And we read it. Peter and how God fills this missing piece, and I'll tell you what that missing piece is. We were already getting a sense of what that missing piece is, crossing over the tracks. But Cornelius has a vision, meantime, he has a vision in a place called Caesarea, which is a Roman household, he he lives in a Roman household in a Roman town. Uh, Judea was really um, the center of Roman administration in Judea, where Roman procurators or governors lived, and the population was mainly Gentile. Philip had been through there, Paul would go through there to get to Tarsus, but now this Cornelius, he's a centurion, he has a hundred men under his care, a hundred soldiers. He, he has this thing called the Italian Regiment, which was interesting. You think of the National Guard, it was kind of like that. Because when there was time of need, that's when that particular Italian Regiment would be put into action. Okay. So <clears throat> Cornelius is considered and spoken of as a fearer of God. Let's get this clear a little bit. To be a fearer of God was not quite a full proselyte, not a, certainly not a Jew. He was a Gentile, attached to synagogues and sympathetic to Jewish belief and ethics. And it says of him that he prayed continuously. He prayed to God continuously. If you actually look at the Greek in that, that word continuously isn't just constantly, but it actually means everywhere all the time. That was Cornelius. And he gave his gifts to the poor, alms to the poor. Technically, though, to the Orthodox Jew, don't care. You're unclean. Cornelius has a vision. It's around 3 p.m., which was the time of prayer for Jews, um, but he was not at the synagogue. But during this Jewish hour of prayer, he is praying, and an angel of God appears to him. The prayers are answered, says the angel of God. He has this vision He has this vision, this angel approaches him and says, your prayers are answered, Cornelius. Your alms are accepted. Actually, what it means is they have become a memorial to God. Man, that's what I want. Anything I do, I want God to have as a memorial. If God remembers it, it will never be forgotten. How cool is that? How great is that? But for Cornelius, think about this. The angel of God says, your prayers have been answered. What do you think his prayer was? I th- I've been thinking about this. You know what I think his prayer was? It was to belong. To belong to God, to be one of his chosen, to be God's. That was his prayer. And the approaching of the angel is the beginning of how this is going to come about for Cornelius. We'll see. So he says, "Send for, for Peter, and he sends for Peter, who's in Joppa. It's about 30 miles then um, that he has to send two servants to get to um, Joppa from Caesarea. Caesarea is also on the shore, by the way. So Peter's in Joppa, meanwhile, and I'm going to give you some a term that at least I tend to do these sorts of things, but he's on a socio-religious reorientational journey, and he hardly knows it. He he has a vision, and the vision, uh, first of all, let's get the context, um, he, there's a sheet that appears to him, we'll see that, but the context is he's at noontime praying. He's not praying at three. Three was the Normal Jewish prayer time. This was lunchtime. So, do you get sort of why this vision is going to be important to him? He's hungry. So, as he's praying, he's kind of being set up, and a large sheet comes down, and this large sheet has four corners to it, which I think represent the four corners of the earth. It is, it is. It's in a a very visual visual way, as the heavens open and show Peter something, it is to show him, make a global statement from heaven. The church is going to go global. That's what we're about. So, four corners of the earth, this large sheet, and in it, all kinds of creatures, especially unclean, which we'll look at, but all kinds of creatures are in this sheet, so it looks like creation, and it looks like Noah's Ark. Arise, Peter, sacrificially kill and eat. That's the Greek again, sacrificially kill. That's the term. Don't just kill, but sacrificially. Let's make this a holy thing. And his response is, no way, Lord. I'm a Jew, just like Daniel. I eat kosher. I've never eaten anything unclean or common. I know Leviticus. It's your law. And you said, no, not the animals, not the birds, not the insects that are unclean. Can't do it, and they're in that sheet, and I can't do that. And uh, in effect, you know that God is saying, yes, you can, and you will. You... You told me, God, I should be holy, set apart, different with the people. You told us all to be set apart, not do what they do, not think what they think, not live like they live and not li- certainly not be with them or get near them and get our hands unclean because we're clean by you. We're made holy by you. And he, God's response, well, before we say it, let's talk about holy for a moment. Not knowing the context of what you have heard about what holy is, and I'm sure you have uh, heard about it before, let me just then reiterate. If you haven't, then good. Holy means to be set apart, to be separated. God, and there's one sense in which being set apart, being holy, is not for us. It's God's God's place, which is that God is not creation; God is creator. And in that sense, as creator, he is wholly set apart from all things. But there's another sense in which we are called to enter into. God is holy in that he is separated from sin, and we then are called, in this sense, Israel is called to be separate from all uncleanness. So their behavior will reflect his character, and that nation will be my people. They'll look like my people, think like my people, talk like my people, eat like my people. We'll take a little pause here. But here's something real important for you. Please get this. This is real important at this, at this juncture for us. Uncleanness is, is defined by God. God defines what is unclean. Did you get that? Uncleanness is defined by God. What that means, therefore, is how we, in our culture, and I want you to think about this, it tends to define what is right and wrong, clean and cle- or unclean, holy or unholy. In our culture, our culture tends to do two things. One is use itself as its own moral compass. Culture has this persistent ten- tendency to redefine what is morally acceptable, even what is morally right. And the second reference point, which is an interesting one, because there is scripture that talks about conscience, that conscience is used as our moral compass. But the only problem with, comp- with conscience is it can be warped and distorted by bad behavior. So it makes it less reliable than we would like it to be. So in a sense, when Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide, he's kind of right, but he's kind of not right. If we only go by these things, we might find ourselves far astray from what God has called clean or unclean, right or wrong, holy or unholy. And here's where I, I want to underscore that what defines, how God defines what's right and wrong, clean and unclean, holy and unholy, is Christ through the scriptures, and that is our moral compass. Christ through the scriptures. Here's some scriptures you know. All scripture is inspired uh, or breathed out by God and profitable for instruction, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's like clean living. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's a guide. The scriptures are right there to train us, to show us, to show us when we get off, show us how to get back on, and then to train us up. The word is gymnazo. Gymnazo. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't use this world as a measuring stick for what to do. Don't let culture be the measuring stick for how to behave if we're talking moral. If we're talking right and wrong, clean or unclean. But rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which we know would come from the scriptures. But not simply the scriptures. The Jewish people in Jesus' day had the scriptures, and Jesus was the one that said to them, you search the scriptures and think that in them you have eternal life, but it is though in them they speak of me. That's why I want you to realize, I want you to to remember, to recall, that really understanding what's clean and unclean, or right and wrong and holy and unholy, is only going to be through understanding through Christ, as he brings the scriptures into our life. So, what we find here is, in this situation with Peter, in this vision, is when he has this sheet of these, these creatures... Is God redefining what is right and wrong, clean and unclean, holy and unholy? Is he redefining it in this vision with Peter? And I want to say yes, he is. Is he compromising his nature and character? No, he is not. And there's a way to sort through this and we'll try to. But what I want to say to you is the statement that This angel says to him, Is what God, this voice says, is what God has cleansed, you must not call common. It's God's prerogative to determine what is clean. And by the way, Jesus has been redefining clean all along in his lifestyle. But the Jewish disciples weren't getting it. The clean and unclean provisions of the law were temporary. They were designed to keep Israel a holy and distinct people, to show that they were different until the time when Jews and Gentiles could receive the forgiveness of sins and sanctification on the same basis through faith, faith in Christ. That's when it all changes. That's, that's how that works, that's the setup. Now, let me say another thing. If you're looking at your scriptures, look at verse 16, because it says in verse 16 of chapter 10 that it's repeated three times. This message is that important to Peter, to the church, to you and me. So transitioning from the rooftop to the Romans uh, is where we want to go. From the rooftop, three things happen to convince Peter. One is he has this vision. Two is that they're the rival of the men that Cornelius sent. What do you know? They're there. they just knocking on the door right after that vision. What do you know? Hmm. And then the clear leading of the Spirit. Because the Spirit says to him while he's pondering and perplexed, he says to him, Behold, three men are looking for you rise and go down and go with them that's an imperative without now here's the other word this is a very interesting word go down and go with them without considering critiquing evaluating because i sent them suspend all that cri- critical past of yours and your perceptions of things just get up and go All the evaluating, this is not time to rethink. Let me do the rethinking for you, God is saying. So, Peter does this. But what is new in this is when those servants talk to him, different than we've heard in this Acts passage, is that they say, Cornelius has sent us to you, they tell the story, and then they say, so that you can come and that we can hear words from you. That's the new part. So what is Peter going to say? Though it's not Levitically legit for Peter to go to Cornelius' home, a Roman household, he goes. With six circumcised believers, we find that in Acts 11, and as well as two servants, the two servants that came. So he gets to, now we're on the fourth day of the story. It's Caesarea. We're in this Roman town. And we see there all set up, it's like this whole thing is set up. There's this expectancy in the space and in the area, in Cornelius' household. Because he's invited all his friends and he's all in his relatives. And, and if that's not enough in verse 24, verse 25 is it is he's so expectant that he falls on his knees to and worships Peter as Peter walks in. Peter, of course, says, no, I'm a man like you, so don't do that. But it shows the level of anticipation on Cornelius's part. And he doesn't know. He, he needs to know. He wants to know. And the audience, it says in verse 26, is large. The word in Greek is mega. And Peter says to them, you guys understand how difficult this is for me. It's actually unlawful for me as a Jew, but God has shown me otherwise. Good move. And this was what was utterly new and radical for Peter. And this is the missing piece. This is the missing piece. By means of the issue of hospitality, capital, bold, underlined, By means of the issue of hospitality, Luke demonstrates that the conversion of the first Gentiles required the conversion of the church as well. Peter is going to have to change, and through Peter's voice as chief of the apostles, he's going to have to go back and and effectually change the church and its mind about Hospitality. So we have Peter's, um, Peter's, uh, of of course we get uh, Cornelius recounting his story, and it's interesting, by the way, in terms of as a literary device, recounting the same story that we already know. That's repetition is a matter of emphasis, like the, the vision being said three times. This is, a recounting to say, this is a, important. So he does, and all of us are here before God to hear what he has commanded you. What is to be said? So Peter, opening his mouth, says, on the truth, I understand that God shows no favoritism. What follows is the sharing of the gospel, the falling of the Spirit upon Cornelius, and those who believe, and Peter's calling for their baptism to be introduced into the fellowship or the communion of all believers in the name of Christ. We need to back up one second, please. I need to underscore something for you or at least help untangle something here. We've been alluding to this, but here it is. We hear the words, God shows no favoritism. Sometimes the translation says partiality. And I have to, my response initially to this is, really? God shows no favoritism? Are you kidding me? What about Abel? What about Noah? What about Jacob? What about David? What about Job? These people were selected uh, beyond the people uh, that were around them. They were favored. I'm going to keep Noah and the rest of the planet is going to go. The rest of the people are going to go. What? God shows no favoritism? What's the point? And then he uses the language of the chosen. God chose them, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, as his people, my people. Unlike any other nation. And you're telling me that God chose no favoritism? What? Here's the way I understand it. But before I get to it, then let's just talk about Jesus here for a moment. In the Transfiguration, there's Moses, there's Elijah. Yes, they fade into the distance, and there's Jesus. Here's my beloved uh, son. Hear him. He's favored, he's chosen, he's elected. No favoritism? This might help you. In the line of God's salvation plan, to be clear, he was selective. And in this sense, God showed favoritism. He favored his plan. One way that might help us, and there were people in his plan, and one way that might help us to hear him say these, these words, my plan, my way got to be that. So in that, he's favoring himself. (laughs) But along with it, those involved in that salvation plan, for sure. So all those people I just mentioned, for sure. God's favor. To accomplish his salvation plan. But it doesn't stop there, because God's, and this is the second plan of God. It's his big communion, 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 communion plan God shows no favoritism in his communion plan and this is altogether different Peter needed supreme divine guidance to convince him to get him to rethink this look if Jesus through the salvation plan makes us all clean before God then that changes everything and if forgiveness is for everyone who believes, then so communion is with everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Here then is the kind of favoritism that God says no to. The word favoritism literally, that word means to accept a face. Did you know that? I find it helpful. Helpful. The literal meaning is to accept a face. It's that superficial way of looking at life. if this world turns on money, sex, and power, then it is about what, what one has, and how one looks, and what one is able to do that tells us what's acceptable. If that's how we live in favoritism. That's the favoritism of the world. Favoritism occurs when we give more respect to one person than to another for no good reason. Favoritism show, somehow involves treating preferentially those that God would not for reasons that God would not have. And with favoritism tism comes exclusion. This is the tricky part. If, if you look at Webster's Dictionary in uh, the early one, in 1913, it says that favoritism is the disposition to favor and promote the interest of one person or family or of one class of men to the neglect of others having equal claims. There's something tricky about this. One class of men over others. In the area, uh, arena of equality, Claims, here's the thing I want you to hear. God determines what is acceptable as the legitimate claims for equality. The legitimate claims for equality. Certain behavior is unacceptable to him and therefore to us and therefore not legitimate as a claim for acceptance. Consider, all have sinned and and therefore no one deserves favorable treatment. And therefore, any given pattern of sin is never a justifiable or legitimate claim or basis for God's favorable treatment or the favorable treatment of others. That's not the basis. In God's way of thinking, which we know throughout scripture, his prohibition of favoritism toward a class of people is not directed at a kind of people who have an immoral affinity or identity such as alcoholics, Drug addicts, thieves, sexually immoral, murderers, molesters, rebellious. This favoritism that that God shows no favorites and is against favoritism is not to say that God is also not against these behaviors. He is against these behaviors. And people who identify themselves acceptably with those behaviors, need to be challenged about that, again and again. Having said that, God's provision of favoritism is toward a a people known by these things. This is where it works. A creational identity, such as God-given gender, or skin color, or cultural context, or ethnicity, characterized by language and custom, It's economic identity, such as the rich or the poor or the middle class. It's developmental identity, such as... No favoritism towards the unborn, the infant, the child, the teen, the adult, the elderly. God shows no partiality. His, His love extends way beyond these classifications. Or urban... Or rural, or popular, or unrecognized. To, to God, the, there is no favoritism in any of these types of distinguishing characters. They don't mean anything to Him, except maybe one exception. If there's any favoritism with God, it is. It is a genuine care toward the oppressed and disenfranchised, toward the foreigner, toward the poor, toward the widow, toward the orphan, toward the prisoner, toward the infirm. Conditional love or perfect love? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you look at the passage referring to God's perfect love, it's actually a complete love, not loving those who love us. But loving the unloved. And in a very real sense, loving the unliked. It pressures us into living, into loving those we like, those we know, those who belong, when our culture is saying to us, conditional love. But if we're saying perfect love, for the people I'm attracted to, the people I'm comfortable with, the people I like, the people that are nice, the people that look and smell nice, the people who are polite, the people who are agreeable, these are the ones? No. Love your neighbor as yourself, not because your neighbor is yourself. That's the problem with image and affluence and education and acquisition and prosperity and comfort and privilege and leverage and looking nice. We're simply called by God to set this favoritism aside for the sake of out of love for the poor. The hurting, the refugee, the morally confused. And also, by by the way, we include in that loving those who love us, loving the people who like us, who think like us, and act like us, and dream like us. But God's perfect love is all-inclusive, and therefore Peter learned there, standing with Cornelius and the gang of his relatives, and seeing them come to Christ, even before that, he learned in the vision that God shows no favoritism. This is my last area. The worldwide, supratemporal, supra-ethnical communion of God. The global communion of God. Moving out. The church moving out. Now I'm going to give you another list of words. American, Iranian, Chinese, Japanese, Pakistani, European, Latin American, battered, abused, scathed, unscathed, famous, unknown, successful, failure, religiously oriented, religiously disoriented, sexually confused, or the certain educated or uneducated, poor, rich, young, old, no matter your race, no matter your place, no matter your look, no matter your influence, no matter the wrongs you have done, no matter the rights you have failed to do, to the sinner, as Peter said to Cornelius, his family, friends, and guests, to everyone, who has believed in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In the name of Jesus Christ, this communion is for you. My memory of Harrisonburg was coming over from Charlottesville uh, just as a, 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 a fourth year student and then afterwards coming over here to, uh, when I was married, uh, coming over here to Harrisonburg and staying with the home of George and Viola Stahl, who were Mennonites. He taught at the Eastern Mennonite College then, now uh, university. And what I remember is walking in the door, I re- I'll never forget it, walking in the door, and it all was hit, struck me simple home, not, a, not well to do in any way, shape, or form, but doing okay, and Viola came right to the door, all smiles, hugs, welcome to our house, we stayed the night, and what I kept seeing and hearing her singing in the kitchen as she was shucking the corn and looking out for some of the other things she had brought in from the garden and as she was taking care of the, the person with multiple sclerosis in the other room and taking care of her husband's mother 24-7, singing and smiling and singing and smiling. And it was, to me, the vision of hospitality. It always will be. The smile, the welcome, the care. From the hospitality of this place, incarnation, and from our homes to those we work with and play with, among our neighbors to the successful, the stranger, To the imprisoned, the addicted, the alone, the normal, regular, the homeless, the jobless, the refugee, the prisoner, the disenfranchised. From Harrisonburg, to the valley, to the outermost parts of the earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.